larger majority of data show that probiotics don't work like drugs. They, they don't work to relieve a headache or relieve depression like an antidepressant. What they're working to do is predominantly to rectify these problems in the gut that then have offshoot systems as where other problems can pop up. Joint pain, skin issues, depression, anxiety, brain fog. So what the probiotics are trying to do is successfully dampen inflammation and immune reactivity in the gut, rectify overgrowths or dysbiosis or infection, and reduce leaky gut. And, and when that happens, you have better nutrient absorption, you have less inflammation, you have less um, immune activation. And this is the, the kind of healthy core situation from which someone will no longer have the brain fog, the insomnia, the depression, what have you. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome back to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. Michael Ruscio. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to dive into the gut-brain connection. How did you get started on, on seeing that this was an important connection to be making? Yeah, unfortunately, I lived through it as a patient who, uh, unbeknownst to me, I had a parasitic infection, and these are actually quite rare. Um, true parasites are actually quite rare to find, um, especially in the U.S. population, but I was one of the, the rare cases. And what was so ironic, but probably helpful for my future career as a clinician, was having a parasite, but having no digestive symptoms, the only symptoms I was exhibiting were brain fog, fatigue, and, and insomnia. Um, and that was a really big lesson for me to learn early in my career is that you can have an amoeba, in this case, amoeba hesolytica, and not have diarrhea, <laughs> like most people will, um, but only have insomnia, fatigue, and, and brain fog. And, and it was really pretty debilitating brain, re um, food reactive, sorry, brain fog. Um, so yeah, that's how I uh, initially found my way into the gut-brain connection was just the horrid experience of brain fog, you know, eating something, and it was kind of a coin toss. Well, you know, I may feel like I'm an idiot and in a fog for the next three hours, or I might not. Let's just hope for the best on this one and suffering through that for a while until I finally discovered that it was really a byproduct of just having a gut that was a mess. So parasites are really fascinating. Um, you'll hear some clinicians say they're actually quite common and that the testing just isn't great. I'm curious how you discovered that you had this. Did you do conventional testing, more of the functional medicine testing? How did you know? Yeah, I, I, good, good question too. I, I did a, um, a stool test and, and the methodology that they were using, because this was 15 to 17 years ago now. So um, this was before the, the, the DNA-based or PCR tests were available, or at least uh, widely available. 
And, and so I used a, it was a functional medicine lab, but they were using the stool antigen recognition, meaning a, a microbiologist is looking for these things underneath the microscope. But it was also cross-confirmed via antibodies via another lab. Because with, with amoeba histolytica, uh, it can kind of get into other cavities of the body, and so it may not always shed in the stool. So there was cross-confirmation. Um, and you're right, uh, and maybe that's something we can talk about later if you want to. Um, you know, the, the parasites being a contentious issue. And certainly I'm someone who was empathetic to, to that situation as someone who had a parasite. Um, but, you know, as a clinician who was doing and still is, two tandem stool tests on patients for about five years until I started to pull back and do a little bit less testing, I can, you can count on one hand usually the amount of parasites that you, that, that you find uh, in an individual uh, or I'm sorry, in a, in a year when, when doing testing on all of your patients. Um, but yeah, that, that was how mine was found. Interesting. So going back to this gut-brain connection, not just parasites, but a lot of other imbalances in the gut can show up in the brain. Can you talk through what symptoms might be telling us that there's a gut imbalance that may not show up as constipation or diarrhea? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. And I really think that's, you know, if there was one take home I'd want people to bring away from the conversation today, it's that you can have a digestive problem that manifests only outside of the gut. This is probably the most well-documented in celiac disease. I want to be careful to say that, you know, that there are plenty of people who can eat gluten without any problem. Um, but it, it, you know, celiac does provide a good model for which some people will only have a manifestation neurologically, or some might only have a manifestation dermatologically, or perhaps even rheumatologically. So there are people who will just have brain fog and depression from eating gluten who have celiac, and they'll have no abdominal pain or diarrhea. Uh, you see some of this in literature with SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Leonard Weinstock has published at least one. Uh, well, actually two studies showing non-gut symptoms that were alleviated after treating SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. One was a neurological condition, restless leg syndrome, and the other was a dermatological condition, rosacea. Uh, so there is you know, additional and progressively emerging evidence that finds that problems in the gut may manifest solely in, in areas outside of the gut. What's the best diet? Can we can we use diet to address these things? And if so, um, what's the best diet for supporting this? Another great question. <laughs> Very good interview. I, I like how your questions are 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 kind of framing these issues in uh, you know somewhat neutral way. And I think with diet, it's really important um, to keep in mind that the, there may not be a best diet for anything, uh, but but there's you know, a few different diets on offer that we can experiment with and see which one feels best to the individual. I feel a good starting point to be your somewhat standard elimination diet. This could be something like a paleo template. doesn't necessarily have to be. I think that's a, a good starting point because it encapsulates avoidance of a lot of the common food allergens. Um, and, and maybe even a step before that would be just general food quality, that's really probably the most important first step is general food quality, fresh, whole, unprocessed, 
shopping the perimeter of the store rather than the aisles, so to speak. Most people, I'm assuming, listening to this have probably ticked that box. And so from there, paleo is one starting point. Um, for, as it pertains to gut health, a low FODMAP diet can be a really helpful trial, especially for people who are in kind of the lower carb and or paleo community, because they're probably inadvertently eating fairly high FODMAP, high in foods that are rich in prebiotics, things that feed bacteria. And that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing, but in those having balances in their gut, a high FODMAP content may actually make things worse. And what we see is this is reflected in some of the clinical literature where in IBS cohorts, irritable bowel syndrome, when they restrict their FODMAP intake, you see improvements, yes, in their digestive symptoms, but also improvements in energy levels. Uh, so that, you know, energy and fatigue often correlate with IBS symptoms. And so the low FODMAP kind of has the gut-brain connection appeal to it um, for some individuals. Going lower carb certainly may be helpful for mental clarity in some, but you can also go too low carb and then people can start having fatigue and insomnia because they're kind of in this perpetual um, kind of metabolic insufficiency. I mean, they just don't have enough carbohydrate in their, in their diet. So those, those are a few different kind of nuances that someone can think through. Food quality, an elimination diet, a low FODMAP diet, and then trying to um, kind of dial in where their carbs maybe should be. When you're talking about food quality, how important is organic to you? Good question. Um, I would say if you can wave a wand and it's not going to be a big deal to you, maybe from a financial perspective, or logistics, then opt for all organic, all grass-fed, you know, what have you. Um, if you know, if not, I'd rather someone focus on non-processed food over organic food if they had to make a choice. Um, and I, I just give that you know a little bit of an out, just because sometimes I see patients in the clinic who put so much pressure on themselves to do everything perfect, um, and they kind of create this unnecessary stress. So food quality is important, and, and there are studies that have shown that people have less uh, organochlorines or you know, whatever um, you know, they're, they're looking for in their research studies from pesticides in their urine or in their blood when they eat organic as compared to conventional. Uh, so you know, there, there is an impact here, um, but if you can't do everything, you know, do the best that you can and come back to the things that you couldn't do now in the future when you may have the ability to do so. I'm curious if you see patients where they are taking more and more and more out of their diet, right? They come to you and we say, okay, let's cut out gluten and dairy. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, I'm not even tolerating you know, corn now, and I'm not tolerating eggs now, and I'm not tolerating the next thing. And so their diets get more and more and more limited. And if someone's experiencing these sorts of food sensitivities, what does that mean for you? How do you interpret that? Yeah, another uh, great question. And I think it's important that as clinicians, we, we handle these individuals the right way, because it's easy to kind of get pulled into the gravity of progressive dietary restriction and there, there is kind of this, this law of diminishing returns or this tipping point where 
further dietary restriction doesn't really seem to make much of a benefit, but it does risk someone under eating or developing an unhealthy relationship with food. And, you know, in Healthy Good Health for You, I lay out this concept of let's not force a dietary solution to what might be a non-dietary problem. So you should be seeing some benefit from diet. You make a few different changes. You zig, you zag, you try the paleo, you try the low FODMAP, maybe dial back the carbs. You make a couple of those trials. Usually three weeks on each one is sufficient, three to four weeks perhaps. But then if you're not seeing much benefit, then I start thinking you're like me in that you were eating pretty much perfect, but you were still having horrid food-reactive brain fog and insomnia and fatigue because there's probably something going on in your gut throwing off normal gut function, and that's really the solution. And you can't really diet your way out of some of these problems, and it's important not to you know, force people into harder and harder and more restrictive diets if they're not, you know, if you're not seeing some signal of improvement from the earlier phase diets. And that's actually a good thing, right? If we can come in with a strong probiotic protocol or antimicrobial therapy or, or whatever it is, then that person should start seeing improvements in how they're feeling and also be able to shortly thereafter broaden their diet. And that has implications for their lifestyle. Um, you know, one of the things I think the, the community doesn't acknowledge is all of these recommendations, especially if someone's kind of piecemealing them all together, well, I'm going to go low carb and paleo and low histamine and low FODMAP and low oxalate and low sulfur, you know, they can really work themselves into a very overly restrictive diet. Um, so yeah, that's the way I, I interpret that. And I try to really proceed cautiously so that we don't lead people into having an overly stressful life and a overly reclusive social life due to these uh, really kind of heavy-handed dietary restrictions. Not only that, but um, it, you did, it, reducing the variety means you reduce the nutrients, right? I had a patient yes. once who he had limited himself to beef and broccoli only, and he ended up with a thallium um, overload, so a toxic metal that got that was high because it's naturally found in broccoli, and that was almost all he was eating. Mm. And so you can create new problems by uh, just basically enhancing imbalances by limiting the variety so extremely. Uh, so I, in preparing for this conversation, I was grateful to see that you have a similar message that, to my own, which is increased variety. Don't limit foods too much. Don't focus on restriction, but really a sign of health is when you can start adding more variety back. Yeah, well said, fully agreed. So uh, we've been talking about how the gut might affect brain function. I'm curious how the brain function affects gut. And you shared a case recently about limbic retraining, helping to alleviate some gut symptoms. I just want you to go into sort of your mental model, your, your clinical model for how, like, when is it what, right? Is it the chicken or the egg? Is the brain affecting the gut or is the gut affecting the brain? Yeah, no, great, great question. And there is, there is a bi-directional relationship here as there is in many systems of the body, it's not just a unilateral direction of communication or influence. There's this kind of back and forth. But to your question, you know, when, when are you on one side of the chicken egg and, and when are you on the other? And you know, in my experience, for the majority of people, it's normally a, a gut to brain. 
But there are exceptions, and and one of these exceptions, you know, is the limbic. I should also mention really quick: if someone's had a concussion or head trauma, and some symptoms started to pop up after that, that's another example of when it could be from brain to gut. Um, to your other point, probably more common than this, especially in a population of people who who really care about their health and are making an effort, kind of in the in keeping with our our last question, who may read and listen to a bunch of stuff online and start to develop kind of fear and angst. Um, and then they can start to develop these limbic imbalances where they're, they're becoming overly emotionally charged about food. And sometimes this even happens kind of on the subconscious level where there's been so long with this really diligent attention to what they're eating and how they're feeling, they, they kind of, overly facilitate and develop imbalances about vigilance about how they feel and what they eat and how what they eat affects how they feel and this can kind of run away with you almost like if someone has you know as an example maybe they have really really strong quads and really weak hamstrings and now the quads just progressively start carrying the hamstrings and it can be really hard to rectify that balance unless you do some specific work to rebalance Kind of the the quad hamstring, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, balance of the knee, and in, in limbic retraining, there's or or, or there, there's things that you'll see in someone's paperwork that may denote that they would be a candidate for limbic retraining. If if someone, if you ask a simple question and someone has, you know, a, a page of information to answer that question, or you know, you ask them, has you know, how is your bloating? and it's a five-minute kind of diatribe, um, or if they've tried 18 diets, or if you see they're on 20 supplements. And these are all kind of tell that, that this person is really gripped to their health tightly, and they're thinking about it a lot, and there's a lot of emotionality and venting. You know, these are indicators to the clinician that the, the issue here, or one of the issues that needs to be resolved, is this kind of emotionality around food. So just looking for those really verbose, almost overly thought out answers or responses to, to uh, clinical questions. You know, how are you feeling? Uh, how did this diet go? How do you eat? What supplements are you taking? Um, you know, those are all pretty good indicators that this person may benefit from this, you know, somewhat uh, intensive form of mindfulness meditation that can start to rebalance some of that hypervigilance can ironically actually make them more reactive to foods. And when they go through this training or retraining, it can be pretty drastic how much their reactivity can improve. And you know, they start having better energy and, and clearer cognition and, and less bloat or whatever it may be. So uh, yeah, those are a few things to kind of look for that, that may cue you in that the limbic system may be kind of on overdrive. That's exciting to hear you share because I've seen profound results with patients just in few in a few days. Um, symptoms they'd had for years resolve using limbic retraining. I'm curious if you're using Annie Hopper's work with DNRS or Ashok Gupta's, or if you have another favorite that you turn your patients onto. Well, Gupta recently published a trial on on his method, so. Um, that's appealing to me, seeing that Gupta is kind of subjecting scientific scrutiny and, and documenting pretty impressive benefit in that trial. 
Um, we use both. What patients who have done both have told me is that the, the DNRS or, or anti-hoppers program is a bit more kind of comprehensive and thorough, but it's also, um, there's a little bit more kind of uh, fluff and, and bells and whistles. So for the people who are really kind of type A and want to do things to the point, then I typically will recommend Gupta. For the people who, who seem to want or like a little bit more um, hand-holding or, or verboseness, then we'll use the DNRS. They both seem to be you know, quite effective. The one thing that's been really helpful for me in clinical practice is something that actually uh, Amy Kapadia, when she was on my podcast, mentioned, uh, and it was such like an aha, because I feel this way with almost everything that I do, you don't have to hit the full recommendation in order for it to be helpful. Meaning you could do 15 minutes per day rather than the often recommended one hour per day and still see benefit. And again, that was such an aha for me because I'll tell people, yeah, you know, if you can only uh, sneak in one dose of the probiotics per day, not the end of the world. If you can't be fully compliant with the diet, that's okay. Take some leeway, have some liberty. Uh, and so it was nice to see that that also followed for Olympic retraining, which makes the barrier to entry for people a lot lower. You know, an, an hour versus 15 minutes. You know, the, the 15 minutes is obviously much easier to kind of wrap your head around. Do you also notice that the people who maybe benefit the most from it are initially the most resistant to getting started? <laughs> good, good question. Um, I haven't seen that. It, it might be because uh, a fair facet of my audience has um, listened to the two interviews with Gupta and the one with Annie Hopper. So they may be a little bit kind of front loaded on it. But I, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be surprising to me to see that people were resistant to that. Because, um, yeah, sometimes the thing that they need the most is the thing that they're most resistant to. That's great. I need to adopt that prime people uh, because it, it, it is one of those things that's so profoundly effective. Uh, but you have to do it, even if it's just partially. You still have to do it to get the benefit. And I echo that. It is one of the therapies that... You know, there are certain categories of therapy, and, and there are some that all clinicians say to themselves, this is an effective therapy, you know, like really effective. And limbic retraining is one of those that people will come back and, you know, how are you feeling today? And it's, wow, I'm feeling a lot better. And, you know, there's not many therapies that can boast that, but I agree with you. Limbic retraining is one of them. You mentioned probiotics. I want to kind of switch gears and talk about the different, I guess, not just different types of probiotics, but like the different strategies of addressing microbiome. So there's the spore-based probiotic that is very popular. There's also this kind of soil-based, and there, I mean, there's a book called Eat Dirt, right? The soil-based probiotic idea. There's also the idea that like, let's just throw as much variety and as many organisms as possible at it and see what happens. And then there's also kind of a you don't see this come up as often, but this idea that we are first exposed going through the birth canal. So what we want to get is are things that are more present in, in like vaginal, in the vaginal microbiome, and that that is going to be the most healing. And then taking it even one step further, there's this idea of fecal transplants. So this is sort of what I'm trying to do is sort of describe the the entire scope of this probiotic field. And I want to get your insights about what works best when, if there's a place for all of them, if there's one that's your favorite, where do you go first? Um, let's dive into probiotics because you are one of the experts around this. Yeah, well, well thank you. It is something that I, I've 
paid a lot of attention to, and I've I've really stayed abreast of the clinical literature and tried different approaches in clinical practice. And because probiotics are not very expensive, they're certainly safe, and, and they have benefits outside of you know, just treating the gut, so to speak. Um, they have kind of these secondary benefits, like a modest ability to reduce cholesterol and blood pressure as one example. Uh, they're, they're really an attractive therapy and one that I think is, is deserving of a high level of attention. One of the things that's unfortunate about the probiotic landscape is much of the educational information that's brought to doctors is sponsored by the companies that make the probiotics. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself because certain interests from industry can help to spur healthcare and medicine and innovation. And so some of that is good. Um, but unfortunately, what, what I don't think has happened on, on the behalf of, of many doctors is fully kind of figuring that out or just seeing that for what it is and giving the either lab companies or supplement companies kind of too much credit and taking their word too much for it rather than information that should be taken with a grain of salt, so to speak. And, and why this is so problematic is because if a company makes a formula and then they publish a trial with that formula, they, they want to kind of herald that, that study in and that formula as the best formula for XYZ, the best formula for constipation, the best formula for depression. And it's not really in their interest to say, you know, there's also two other probiotic formulas that have been shown to be helpful for depression or for constipation or what have you. So what, what this does is it, it creates a flood of competing claims in the marketplace. And it makes it really hard for doctors, clinicians, and for patients to figure out, well, what do we do with probiotics? And, you know, as someone who's really looked at this question, so much sort of the fact where we've, we've even taken, let's say, in the model of IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, probably one of the, the best models we have for showing what sort of impact probiotics has on gut health at large, and taken all of the major formulas on the market that have been shown successful, put them in an Excel sheet side by side to compare not only the species, but also the strain. And what you see is that there are different formulas that have all shown benefit for IBS. And that goes to the species level and also to the strain level. And what's interesting is from type to type to type to type, there's some overlap, but there's also notable differences. Same thing holds for constipation. Uh, there have been different formulas that have all shown benefit for constipation. There are different formulas that have shown improvements for depression. So th there's there's this claim that you you know you need the certain species or the certain strain, and we've really looked at this in earnest. And while there's some evidence that supports that notion, the much larger majority of data show that probiotics don't work like drugs. They, they don't work to relieve a headache or relieve depression, like an antidepressant. What they're working to do is predominantly to rectify these problems in the gut that then have offshoot systems as where other problems can pop up. Joint pain, skin issues, depression, anxiety, brain fog. So what the probiotics are trying to do is successfully 
dampen inflammation and immune reactivity in the gut, rectify overgrowths or dysbiosis or infection, and reduce leaky gut. And, and when that happens, you have better nutrient absorption, you have less inflammation, you have less um, immune activation. And this is the, the kind of healthy core situation from which someone will no longer have the brain fog, the insomnia, the depression, what have you. So in the IBS literature, there's also a trend that multi-species probiotics work better than single species probiotics. So there's, there's this trend that, you know, to your earlier point, that a more diverse array seems to work better. So we've been taking that a little bit further at the center, and we've been using what's known as probiotic triple therapy, meaning instead of using one formula, we'll use three at the same time. And what this does is it provides three different legs of support in helping to rectify and balance the gut. The other part of this that explains the rationale behind the three different formulas, the, the triple therapy, so to speak, is when you do look at all of the studies on probiotics or, or the, the vast majority, you see that they tend to filter into one of three different general types. Your traditional lactobacillus and bifidobacterium species blends, this is your VSL3, and there's many out there like this. Your, your florastor-like, which is your Saccharomyces boulardii, or your soil-based, uh, which contains various bacillus strains. And there's, a, there's, a over, there, there's over 100 studies for the lactobacillus bifidobacterium. I think there's about 500, actually. There's about 100 or so of the Saccharomyces boulardii type, and there's about 20 to 40, depending on what pocket of literature you look at for the soil-based type. And so these, all these probiotics show benefit. And what we've been for doing... What? For what in particular? Well, I mean, they've, they've been... So the lactobacillus and bifidobacterium are the most well-studied. They've been around the longest. They have the most research interest. So that's where you'll find evidence showing benefit. Everything for infants in the neonative intensive care unit having better overall outcomes all the way through anxiety and depression. The Saccharomyces boulardii, a bit newer, less research, but been shown helpful for IBS, for traveler's diarrhea. Some studies have shown that the Saccharomyces boulardii is as effective as antifungal medications for eradicating fungus. They also tend to help with H. pylori eradication. And the soil-based probiotics, the newest, they have the least amount of studies. So you know they've been documented to benefit the least amount of things more likely because there's just been less inquiry into them, but they've been shown to be effective for IBS and also for inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and there may be other data there, but that's, the, you know, the real thrust has been consolidated to matters in the GI. And so what we've been doing at the center is combining all three of these together. And we've documented case studies where someone may have been on, let's say, a low FODMAP diet and a probiotic before and seen some results. And when we get them on the triple therapy, they really see you know, additional needle movement they weren't seeing before. And it's likely for two reasons. One, we're taking the dose a little bit higher of the probiotics because you're using three formulas rather than one. And the other is you're, you're supporting 
that got in, in these different ways. You know, the soil-based probiotics, the, the bacillus species, are different than the healthy fungus, the Saccharomyces boulardii, which are a little bit different than the lactic acid-forming bacteria of the lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. Now, we haven't published anything on this yet, but we're actually in process of studying the triple therapy with a quality of life measure pre-post intervention, a SIBO breath test pre-post intervention, and an IBS visual analog scale pre-post intervention. Because uh, we've been doing this long enough and we're confident enough in this observation that we, we, you know, we want to document this scientifically um, so that we're not just kind of conjecturing. But that's what that is uh, what we've been doing in the clinic and it, it really works quite well. That's exciting. Is there a minimum number of billions of organisms uh, in each of those kind of three legs of the stool? And then also the age-old question around probiotics, with or without food before bed, when do you take them to get the most benefit? So I haven't found, to, to your last question first, I haven't found that with or without food makes a difference. I, you, know, I, you know, earlier on in my career, I was a bit more strict about with food, without food. And then as patients were, were busy and they, you know, they'd say, doc, it's really hard to kind of, you know, take these supplements without food and then those with food. And I say, okay, well, let's just try doing everything dosed twice per day. And we've been doing that now for a couple of years and we're still seeing great outcomes. So I don't think it really matters. Now, there's the mechanistic argument that, well, if you take them with food, you know, the stomach acid, sure, I hear that argument and, and that's, that's a mechanistic you know, um, conjecture, but it doesn't really seem to be clinically meaningful. Meaning, okay, perhaps taking probiotics with food where you're gonna release more stomach acid leads to a 2% decrease in the viability of the probiotic. That 2% just as an arbitrary estimate, it doesn't seem to have any difference in the clinical outcome of the probiotic. Um, so I've been simplifying the, simplifying the, the dosing there and it seems to work really well or um, the same maybe better if people are more compliant, right? Because if, if they're skipping doses, then they're less compliant. Um, and then regarding the dosages, there are ranges that have been used for each categorical type. And I don't have the, the dosing ranges committed to memory, but in our probiotic recommendations, and people can find them pretty easily on the internet, you'll see a dosage range that we list for each categorical type. And that's pretty much using the lower limit that's been used in the clinical trials and the upper limit. Now, there, there might be an outlier study here and there that used a whoppingly high dose or a very, very small dose. We kind of cut those outliers out, and the ranges that we report are, you know, with the majority of the studies, the lower and upper end of the range. And the reason why we list the range is so that we can personalize the dose. For people who respond really well, they may only need one dose per day. For people who are a little bit less responsive, they may need uh, two doses per day. And what this kind of um, bottom lines out to is for a formula as a rough guide, you either take one or two capsules at a, at a dose and you take the dosage one or two times per day. You know, roughly speaking, that gets you into the range. And what's nice about that is it doesn't, doesn't kind of confine people to um, one specific dose, but they can listen to their body. Start low if you're on a budget, and if that's working, great. We'll ride that wave. If you start lower, and you're noticing some improvement, but you think there's you know more improvement that you've yet to realize, then let's go up to the higher end of the dose range and see how that goes. And so there's there's um, a bit of range there for people to navigate within. 
You speak a bit about regenerative agriculture. How does that tie into our guts and our brains and our health generally? Yeah, it's a great question. This is something one of my friends and colleagues, Anthony Gustin, um, has been doing a lot with lately. And one of the things that we're that we seem to be missing when compared to hunter-gatherer societies, if we're using that as, as a model of, you know, how free-living humans would, would naturally associate if if there wasn't the, all the modern technology and, and such that we have. Uh, one of the things that we're missing is is contact with dirt and naturally occurring germs and animals. And this is where sustainable agriculture has a lot of um, merit to start fixing really the root cause of where some of these problems that clinicians like you and I end up cleaning up the, the end result of, and, you know, meaning someone didn't have the healthiest formation of their microbiota up to four years of age, and now on an ongoing perspective, they're not getting enough kind of inoculation from the environment. And so they're hyper-reactive to food, and they have an overgrowth of bacteria in their gut. Ironically, right? Ironically, lack of bacteria exposure can lead to uh, an overgrowth of bacteria, probably because it throws off uh, the immune system, uh, amongst other things. So one of the ways that we can help to unwind that is not to have animals and or farming partitioned into these big agro or industrial uh, farms. Um, so that, you know, it's a path forward in, in terms of not putting everything into these very isolated and kind of unnatural settings and trying to get us back uh, you know, a bit more to a, a farm-like model. I don't necessarily have a great answer there other than advocating for it. It's not an area of study for me. It's just one thing that I, I support because those exposures do help give our immune systems the training or the exercise that it needs to really function optimally. We started this conversation talking about your experience with parasites and the hygiene hypothesis does lay out a bit of this in that, and I think this also bears out in the literature that if you are not exposed to parasites as a child, then your likelihood of developing autoimmune diseases and also allergies is higher as an adult. And so there, there's a push-pull here, right? There's good and bad bugs. There's imbalance that determines that. And really becoming completely sterile is not the goal, and that creates new problems. And so it's about creating balance and, and looking to those natural systems to see how we can, uh, I guess, get the, the best of both our modern technology, our modern world, and maintain the benefits of the natural world. Yeah, I fully agree. I mean, it's well said. And I think it's just important to echo that um, I'm not advocating that we go fully back to hunter-gatherer because that would create other problems. I don't think we'd be able to feed everyone uh, you know, if, if we were fully in the hunter-gatherer model. And, th and there are benefits of technology, like reduced infant mortality is something that has been a huge achievement for us. But yeah, to your point, it's trying to find the optimum balance point between those two extremes. Yeah. Dr. Rusio, it's been an absolute pleasure having you today. I know you are a busy guy, so I'm going to let you go, even though this conversation could go on and on. I know. <laughs> a ton from you. And I'm really grateful for your insights, and I'm sure that our listeners are as well. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. This podcast is for informational purposes only. 
The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.